Father, we um, acknowledge that your instruction comes from love, from a pure heart, a sincere faith, and a clear conscience. And God, we thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light unto our pathway. Lord God, speak through us through your word. May the words of my mouth, God, and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord God, our strength and our redeemer, in whom I trust, in whom we trust, in Jesus' name, amen, 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 amen. Um, um, today's message, of course, we entered last week a series on stewardship, on stewardship. And last week, we dove into Psalm 24 and chapped it up on the issues of God being owner. Um, God being owner, that, that's, the, that's one of the most central theologies that every believer must believe. It's, it's one of those doctrines that should permeate our understanding of everything, saturated, not segmented off. And so that's why one of our models at Epiphany Fellowship, one of our main models based on and extracted from the word of God is showing off the glory of Christ. Let's try that again. Showing off the glory of Christ. Is there any area of life where Jesus shouldn't be seen in? Wow. The Bible says that Jesus made all things for himself. And so in light of that reality, we show off everything that he's created in that particular way. And so that leads me into what our discussion is going to be today because I wanted every message that we talked about to flank last week's message. I, I want the theme of God's ownership to go through the entire series as we talk about his stewardship. Number two, the second thing that I want us, and I believe the Bible wants us to zoom in on, is a gospel-centered understanding of stewardship. Now, 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 uh, gospel-centeredness just means that the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ um, applies to every single thing in our life. We don't begin getting justified by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone. Then we get off training wheels and do the Christian life on our own. No, the gospel permeates every single area of life. So as we go through this series, I don't want us to approach stewardship moralistically because most of the time when you hear a series on stewardship people are bleeding and, and frustrated about what they haven't been able to accomplish and do and so they begin working really hard as a way to please God with what they do we don't try to please God the Christian doesn't try to please God I know that's gonna scare some of y'all but Jesus has pleased God already and so because he's pleased him already, we walk in Christ's pleasure of God. Therefore, we please God because he's already been pleased by Jesus if you're in him. That's key. So we don't steward anything to please God. We do it out of the energy that Christ provides, Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. And so that's very important as we talk about a subject like this that we're going to talk about today. Because today we're really going to talk about the spheres of stewardship. The spheres of stewardship, our gifts, our talents, our time, and our sphere, and Jesus' Bema. I'm probably not going to finish today. I got like 20 pages to get through. So we are literally, and so, um, and, and it was, every time I was studying deeper, I was just like, goodness, this is too much. Goodness, this is too much. And so 
as, as I went through and just looked at it, I mean, this is supposed to have been a past nine, what a nine week series. Now I guess it's going to be a 10, 12 weeker. So, um, and so we're going to try to get through it before semester ends. Amen. Um, <laughs> but, but, but it's so much to learn in this because I think this is going to be one of those unique key series that we go through to, for God to really form us into great practitioners of his truth. It's, it's, of, mount, it's, of, it's, of, it's of great importance, and we're going to dive today into Matthew 25. Turn to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, starting with verse 14. If you're there, say amen. If you're not there, say hold up. All right, 10, 9, 8. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Matthew 25, verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one who gave, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he, sent, and then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made, uh, five, he, uh, and made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after... A long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made you two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew uh, you to be a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew I reap where I have not sown and gathered, where I scattered no seed, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For, ev for to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in the place where 
there there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow. This is a this is one of those passages that is a very complex yet simple passage at the same time. It's kind of like the tension there. This is in the section of scripture. Of course, it's in the book of Matthew. Well, one of the things that Matthew is trying to exhibit and explain is he will talk a lot about Jesus as king. He's displaying and defending the fact that Jesus Christ is messianic king. Say messianic king. They were expecting a king to come and to rule that was promised through uh, the lineage of uh, David. And so Messiah had come. And so Matthew, who, of course, was a tax gatherer, um, um, that had a bunch of wild and friends, one day encountered the Lord Jesus Christ and trusted him by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. And he had a gathering at his crib and he had mad heads over and they were hanging out as mad sinners. And they got to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and Matthew being missional almost immediately. And so we see that reality in his life. And so we see that as he's laying out the, this, this book in the book of Matthew, this idea of the kingdom, he's going to talk about the messianic kingship of Jesus being the promised one. And so he's going to emphasize that and that threat, that hermeneutical thread is going to go through in the entire book. And it's also going to be especially and explicitly seen in this section in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 um, through verse 30. What's powerful about this section is this, this is called the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is giving some of his last ditched information about what he wants his um, people to respond like and look like in light of his truth until he returns. And so just like what we, what we went through, we went through John, the upper room discourse is chapter 14 of chap to chapter 17 of the book of John. Jesus was giving last teachings, of course, for the leaving of, of him leaving and coming back again. And so here, this is not strange to hear this type of information here. Now, as we go through this, there are about four, which I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, four hermeneutical understandings of the, um, of the Olivet Discourse and also most of the book of Matthew. Um, there, there are four threads. You have first, um, uh, stay with me because all of this is by way of introduction to help us to get a framework so we can wrap our hands around this before we even dive into the applicational portion. There are four views of how to view the Olivet Discourse. The number one is the, is the, uh, uh, the old or classical dispensational view. Then you got the progressive dispensational view. Then you have the old covenant view. And then fourthly, you have what's called new covenant view. Now, the old dispensationalist or uh, a classical or revised dispensationalist will view this specifically for Israel only. And it's not applicable to the church because in their framework and hermeneutic, they believe that the church and Israel are separate. So in light of this, this passage is spoken specifically to Israel alone to talk about Israel's responsibility, what, what God gave them in the Old Testament or if you're Jewish law prophets and writings. Progressive dispensationalists will kind of believe that, but they're a bit of hybrids of sorts. Old Covenant guys um, would kind of believe that because they believe that Israel and the church are equal and the same entity, and there should be no hermeneutical separations between the two. Hermeneutics is just the art and science of interpreting scripture. So they would look as the church already having had existed in the Old Testament. However, the New Covenant guys 
um, would say, yeah, I agree with that, but I would also say that there are some distinctions, yet similarities, as with the progressive dispensationalists. So we're going to, so really they're basically kind of on that in the same spot, but most people keep their views separate so that they won't lose their jobs at the seminary. So they have to continue to be covenant or dispensationalists. But, but, but here we're going to be that hybrid of sorts. We here at, at Epiphany would emphasize um, a, a both and approach um, that there are things that God is not finished with with physical Israel. Um, 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 but we would also believe that the church in Israel do have similarities and are a people of God, not two different peoples of God. And we'll talk about that as we walk through in the near future, probably in a year or so, as we walk through that. But I want us to understand that as we go through this. But all of the above, all four groups kind of would say that there is deep applicational value for all people of God through this passage. And so Jesus responds to several questions of his disciples. In chapter 24, Jesus is dropping weight on them, dropping crazy weight on them about what it's going to be like in the meantime. And he's like, yo, like cats walked up to him and was like, Jesus, like when, when is this coming to pass? Like when are these things going to happen? In verses five, four, five, and 6, or 3 through 6, uh, I believe it is of chapter 24, when is these things going to happen? And when will the end come? And so what we're believing as uh, in our hermeneutical understanding of that is we're not what's called, stay with me because I got to make sure you understand this. We're not called a preterist. A preterist believe that all end time events have happened already in the first century and they are fulfilled. We're not that. And they, some of them believe that Jesus Christ already had a type of return. We don't believe that. So what we believe about those two questions is there's a, there's a distinction between those two questions. Number one, they're asking, when are these things going to take place? And it was specifically some specific things that had to do with the temple being destroyed. However, the others are far when he says, and when will you come in your kingdom again? When will you consummate everything? That's far, okay? But there were glimpses of some already not yet. That's what you'll see in the first four chapters of Revelation. So now when we come here, Jesus is giving them some clarity, listen, on what a response of his people are supposed to be in the meantime. What should Christians, what should God's people function like during this time whether you believe in spiritual israel or the church it doesn't matter the applicational value of this passage is unified and it's very very important that we are living in light of a reality of the already and not yet so today we're talking about our gifts our talents our time and our sphere we're only going to get probably through time so we're going to we probably just get through that and we'll pick the rest up next week. And so in this pericope, he is ending his communication with them on the Olivet Discourse is about the end and Jesus is about to go to the cross. And so this these are the last things that he's telling his disciples. And, and I love all of the things that he's telling them um, in this section. We're going to get a lot of great nutrients out of this. So number one, number one, Jesus expects faithfulness. With his possessions. It's real simple. He expects faithfulness with his possessions. Last week we talked about him being the owner. That permeates this too. Look at verse 14. It says, for it will be like. Stop. What, what will be like what? Great question. Verse 1 of chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like. That's what he's talking about. The kingdom. So the question comes up, 
in light of that, what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? I like Tony Evans' um, uh, 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 definition of it um, out of his book, uh, The Kingdom Agenda. He says, the, the kingdom is God's comprehensive rule over all creation. I love that definition. I think it's the best definition I've ever heard of the kingdom. It's God's comprehensive rule over all creation. So this parable is about the kingdom. Now, a lot of Christians think the church is the kingdom. The church is not the kingdom by itself. It's a part of the kingdom. Okay, because God's rule is over all creation. Church is a part of that creation, even though we are redemptive creation. This for it will be like always also plant, uh, points back to verse 13. Look at verse 13. It says, watch, therefore, for, you know, uh, neither the day nor the hour. So he's pulling in this pericope on both of those things as he explains this parable. Now, just to give you a quick hermeneutics class real quick, a Bible study methods class, you have to be very careful when you're in a parable to overinterpret every symbol in the passage. Jesus has a singular, yet he has a singular interpretation that he wants us to walk away with. However, the application is multifaceted. And so what, what we want to understand is, is zooming in and keying in on what he wants us to understand again. And so you'll see in verses 1 through 10, as he talk about the parables of the ten virgins, he's talking about spiritual preparation in that section. Spiritual preparation pointing to getting saved. But then this section, he's going to talk more about spiritual service of those who have trusted him and those who haven't. So in this section, we will see the responsibility that God will give those people who are faithful and who are unfaithful in relation to the gospel. And so it says, it's, it, he says, so for it, it, it will be like, that is the kingdom of God will be like a man going on a journey. I like that. Jesus most of his ministry was telling his people, the disciples, and the, and the rest of the 120, that he was not going to always be there. So he's interpretively playing on how he's talked to them the entire time, and now he's saying, it's like a man who goes on a journey. And what Jesus is pointing to his disciples is, is one day I am going to ascend to heaven. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and was raised from the grave, he hung out for a month and about 10 days with his disciples, appearing like he had a Star Trek deal, like bleeping all over the place. Just zoom, 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 you know, appearing, walking through walls and or, or disappearing, reappearing, um, scaring the daylights out of his disciples, bailing his presence, all types of things. But then in Acts 1-8, Jesus eventually goes on a journey and he steps on a cloud and he surfs back to heaven all over again. And he said, and the angel, the cast was looking up rocked because they had never seen nothing like that. And I would have been looking too. And, and, and angels, two angels showed up with, 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 with spanking white gear and came and said, man, pull your eyes down. Um, go to Jerusalem because Jesus, who you saw go up like that, will return in exactly the same way. So Jesus says, I'm going on a journey. So, so, so what I'm about to tell you is like a man going on a journey, but it's not just any man, it's me. And I'm going to go on a journey. And then he says, he says, who called his servants and entrusted them with his property. Now, you got to understand in the Jews mindset. <laughs> that would have rocked them. 
Now, now, now what would have rocked them, Pastor? Well, what would have rocked them was the fact that servants got entrusted with property. Listen, slave, this is the word here for servants is doulos, slaves, bondservant. Now, you got to understand an unredemptive understanding of bondservant so that you can understand what it meant when he said this to them in the, in the, in the, um, in the framework of this story. He'd have been like, this is like a bondservant, a person bought with a price. Like, the steeds in their environment was you didn't take care of property. You weren't entrusted with property. You were able to be around the property. You were able to work on the property, but you weren't giving managerial responsibilities. And so in their minds, they're like, this is a crazy, like Jesus always got some twist on how he does things. But what's powerful in what we see about this understanding of bondservant in this passage and them being entrusted is that it's almost an elevated view of what doulos means or servitude means. What do, we, what do you mean by that? Well, it's, it's interesting and it's very, very important for us to understand because, because, it, because of in their society, um, one of the things even in our core values that we would emphasize is culturally relevant ministry. But even in the framework of our core value, culturally relevant ministry, we are countercultural also. What do I mean by that? Be- because there are some things that are not redeemable and shouldn't be carried over to the kingdom. So what Jesus does is he flips the script on the disciples and the Jews understanding of what a servant is. And so Jesus, in calling us those who are bought with a price through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, are entrusted as a different type of servant than the culture's view of the servant. So Jesus is telling them, even in this passage, I don't view servitude the same way the world views servitude. And so he's being countercultural. He's rebelling, if you would. He's, he's rebelling against people's understanding of servitude. Now, he's elevating them from servants to stewards. And so he calls them, Jesus says he calls them to himself. One writer says, his own with slaves may, have, may be intended to highlight the master's action as unusual here. Make investment arrangements for a period of absence was made in these days and other ways. These slaves are being treated with particular distinction. The need to call the slaves already distinguishes the master slave uh, interaction in this parable from any of the use in other parables. Elsewhere, slaves are only supposed to speak when spoken to. And so it's a very different cultural understanding of this that Jesus is about to transcend. And now they're being elevated from slaves to stewards. Say stewards. Now let's go back to our definition that we laid out last week. Steward. A steward is to acknowledge, to be a, I mean, to a stewardship rather. Stewardship, and then I'll explain steward in a second. Stewardship is to acknowledge God as owner. And sole proprietor of all creation, thereby understanding that all creation, both concrete and abstract, within our sphere is placed there for us to worship and to glorify God with it. So what is a steward in light of that? A steward is one entrusted to manage someone, something, or someplace. And so as a steward, a steward is supposed to manage what the owner owns that's the center of this 
And so he goes and he begins to, and this is so powerful. He says, and he entrusted to them his property. Then when it says they entrusted him with his property, it says to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And we're going to stay on that for a little while. Because I, I, th I think that we have some rich nutrients right here. See, when, the, when this master was leaving, he left and he gave his servants talents. Now, what is a talent? Some people um, believe, of course, that it's one talent is basically worth about 10,000 denarii, which is probably 30 years wage at minimum wage. Um, now, if he gave main man five, that means he gave him 50 G's, right? Now, what does that mean? That means he gave him more than a lifetime amount of wage to manage. To the second one, he gave him, he gave him five lifetimes, the first one, two lifetimes, the second one, and one lifetime of wage for this other guy. Now, I don't know about you, but see, they, they didn't write checks back then. They didn't have memo lines and, you know, names on checks, addresses, and router numbers. He gave them hard, cold cash. Now, to most of y'all, y'all would have been like, see, anybody tell me to manage 10 Gs, like he going to prison or something? I'm probably going to take that cake and not stash it, but use it for me. Um, but here is interesting that he entrusted each a certain amount, five lifetimes of wage, two lifetimes of wage, and one lifetime of wage. But then it, 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 it's, it, it's beautiful what he says, and I'm explaining talents in a minute. It says each according to his own ability. So that means that the owner understood and knew exactly the leadership or stewardship or management threshold of each of his servants. Now, speaking sovereignly of God, God doesn't just observe us, see what we're able to do, and ration to us things to steward based on what he sees in us. No, God is forward thinking about it, and he doesn't see it, he creates it in us. So what God does for everyone, even unbelievers, but for especially the household of faith, is what he does is he gives us specific areas and specific abilities. Now, what's interesting is God always matches what he wants us to steward with the ability that he's given us. That's very, very, very important. You'll even hear in Romans chapter 12, verse 3 or 4, it says, to him who prophesies according to his faith. I always bl been blown away by that because somebody who has the gift of prophecy, which I've rarely met one who really has it. Um, but I, I've, I've met a couple that actually have an authentic foretelling and foretelling gift, possibly, possibly. Um, but but the Bible says that it is based on faith level. But then the Bible says that also that God gives the gift of faith. Um, 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 but but all Christians have been given a measure of faith. It's crazy, right? So there's some who have superlative faith because they have the gift and it comes almost natural. But then every believer has faith, but we're equally responsible for our use of it. 
So he's given each one the ability. Every person has an ability. But most of us spend most of our time daydreaming off of others' abilities versus allowing ourselves to zoom in on the abilities that God has given us. And so he basically rations to them exactly what is needed. Now, as Christians, we are co-heirs to the reign of Christ. Now, if we're co-heirs to the reign of Christ, even me as a pastor, even though I'm higher in rank in kingdom, um, that doesn't matter in co-heirship with Jesus Christ because all of us have a fair vantage point of opportunity to be able to maximize everything that God has placed in our sphere and to reap the benefits of that. And so it's very, very important that we understand that God in his grace and God in his mercy has rationed abilities to his people. And so it's very, it's very, very important that you are able to enjoy and to be enjoy God and be satisfied with the gifting that he's given you. That's deeply important. And I'm, and, and again, talents is I'm not going to zoom that in on just being spiritual gifts is way, 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 way more than that. Way, way, way more than that. And so, again, everyone was given specific abilities. It's interesting. The word ability here is the word that is normally translated uh, uh, power, which is, is dunamai, which means power. Used here to speak of a person's strengths and abilities. Therefore, the master is wise enough to match their stu- this, the steward with the proper amount of responsibility. It's powerful to me. According to their ability points to the fact that the master was intimately acquainted with the gifts and skill levels that he gave to these people, these servants of his. So from a theological theological standpoint, God has given us gifts, talents, wiring, spheres to be fleshed out um, in these things. One of my one of my favorite verses, but it's scary to me, is Luke 12, 48. It's a scary verse. It is scary. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And so, and so as I began, before we get into this talents section of this passage, you know, one of the things that I was overwhelmed with is how much God has placed into our sphere to be responsible for, for his namesake. I mean, I, I, I basically had to stop. Or I would have been studying another. So that's why this ain't even going to be finished today. But this area of ability is very, very important as we talk through this. So what does God expect? Point two, and we'll only finish half of this. I want you to salad this because I want to I want I want us to talk through this idea of talents. And we want to interpret what talents are from uh, from a figure of speech standpoint. Jesus expects wise use of his possessions. He expects wise use of his possessions. So, so, so look at verse. Let's finish, the, let's finish the latter part of verse 15. So it's interesting that he already gave them abilities and talents. Then it says, then he went away. So that's Jesus leaving and giving gifts and talents to his people. So it says, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and he made five more talents so also he who had 
the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Stop right there. So we see now after the master leaves, there is going to be a time period. There is going to be a section of time that um, between his leaving and his return. You see it there? And so we as Christians, even in our mission statement here at Epiphany Fellowship, that comes out of Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 13, connects with this deeply. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, that's the word epiphany, where we get our church title from, name, bringing salvation to all men, training us. Well, let me, let me stop there. Well, first off, Jesus Christ's first advent. That's when he first came, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. He dipped. So what did he do when he was here, leaving us with the responsibility in between the two advents? His first advent was his incarnation, and his next is going to be the consummation when he ultimately returns to reveal everything and to take back everything he owns to rule it practically. And it says in between that time, he had trained us to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires or passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age what's the present age the time in between jesus's first and second advent so when we look at this passage right here and we look at um the talents that he's given these guys it reflects what he's given his people but what he's also given to all people however he's going to hold us responsible for these talents in a different way. So what do these talents, this, th these lifetimes of wages, what do they point to to us? What do they point to to us is first off, it points to the, us that God has given us some things that are worth a whole lot. These talents were first off worth a whole lot of money beyond lifetime, beyond a lifetime of wages, of opportunity, to utilize it. But even though it's over that, this dude doubled it. Five talents, he doubled it and developed ten lifetimes of wages. <laughs> ten lifetimes of wages. Golly. Then the other one, he develops two more lifetimes of wages, therefore having four lifetimes worth of wages. But then main man, the last one, it says, but. Don't ever run past the but. Because, oh, Lord, please, no pun intended. But the contrasting conjunction in the text, get your minds back on things above. Amen. <laughs> but the last one hit it. Now, what's interesting about this from a background standpoint is it was very, very normal for them to put stuff in a field. Um, it was kind of just like grandmama back in the day. You know, she had stockings. And she put her money, roll that joint up in a knot. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And she put them in the stockings, but she didn't trust the bank because she was living before banks was really big. You know what I'm saying? So she, I don't know about that. I don't know what people are doing with the money. So my grandmama would tie a rope around it and put it up under. And she had different spaces around the house. You know, she hit the wall and something would drop down. She'd grab it like that. You know what I'm saying? Just, you know, grandmama was, you know what I'm saying? And so this, during this time... During this time, you know, we used to use, we used to cut it up after she'd give us some money and use it for stocking caps to get waves in the late 70s and 80s. Y'all know nothing about that there. Um, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Everybody that don't have, you know, a certain type of hair, you don't even know what we're talking about. But waves, wavy hair. Um, but the point of that illustration is to point to 
The segmentation of how in this passage they would hide money in the ground as normal. It was very, very normal. Even today when they do archaeological excavations, they find uh, people, people's money and resources that they had buried that had never, they had never uh, recovered and gained. Okay, and, 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 so, and, so, and so that's very, very normal. So now, we've explained that from the original author's intent to the original audience. Now, let's understand applicationally and theologically and practically what this means for the believer, for the Christian today. Okay, now, talents are, is, was money then, but Jesus is using this idea of talents to point to everything that he's given in our sphere to take advantage of. Okay, now that includes gifts. That includes talents, that is, talents, not the same type of talents here. Some people have said these talents were talents. No, the talents in the text is money, but it does apply to talents. It applies to our sphere. It applies to our Christian responsibility, and it also applies to time. Now, there's certain things that all of us have been equally given. Now, all of us as Christians, and I'll talk about that next week. We won't even get to it this week. There's certain things that we as Christians have been equally given, but there are some things that are equally given, even though we will unequally given, even though we will be held equally responsible. OK, so 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 today. So today I want to talk about a hard one, but I want us to zoom in on the cross as we talk about this talent that I think is the most wasted talent on the planet. Time. Time. What's interesting is when you look at this passage. It talks a lot about time. It talks a lot, like, over and over and over, journey, time frame. It talks time frame. And so what's beautiful about this idea of time, that the Bible says something specifically about it in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 16. Let's turn there because I want to explain this joint. All right, turn over there. Ephesians 5. Verses 15 through 16. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So, 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 so before he even talk about time, he talks about the use of it should be marked by wisdom, not by foolishness. Y'all hear that? And so now what's important is you got to understand what comes before it because he talks about children of darkness and children of light. Now, when he talks about children of light, he's explaining to us that there's a divine expectation for a child of the light to walk as a child of the light. What does it look like to practically be a child of the light? Practically to be a child of the light, based on 1 John chapter 1, means to be exposed to God's word regularly. So, 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 so before we even get through time, th there's a need for exposure that influences how we use our time. But then he says in verse 16, powerful, check it out, fam. It says, make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Wow. The, oh, oh, the King James Version say, uh, redeem the times. I like that. Redeem the times. That's a, that's a powerful principle. How in the way, it literally means to buy back time. Uh, what does that mean? What does that mean to buy back time? That means... As a child of darkness, you didn't properly use time. Somebody ought to hear me. See, some of y'all don't remember what you were like before. I, I, I done seen some beauty pictures online before and after pictures, you know what I'm saying? 
and the other one lo always looked tore down from the floor down. And you don't understand how tore down from the floor down you were in relation to how you use time. But before Christ, practically and positionally, nothing counted. Because God doesn't accept anything unredeemed. He doesn't. So before Christ, our use of the talent of time was misused. Now, when we trusted Christ as Savior, we was transformed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his marvelous son, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. So now there is an expectation on us to properly use time differently than we used to. However, many times people become Christians and their time doesn't look any different than when they were non-Christians. And so God is calling us to amp up our use of time, to buy it back through the gospel of Jesus Christ and to utilize it to, in a different way than we used to use it. This idea of time, um, this idea of time is, is interesting. It says you are attempting to gain time. The force would be that because they are living in the last days, which are both evil so the normal use of time is evil. That's normal. And it's sure believers should attempt to gain time in order to be able to continue to do what is good and right and true. Galatians in Galatians chapter three, verse 13 and four or five. The verb is this same verb for time. Uh, chronos, um, Akira, Akiras, I'm sorry. Same verb is used um, as some hold that it retains the force here of Christ's redemptive act. It seems, however, slightly bizarre to treat this in this way only, but it is used in that way. So it literally means to exhaust the possibilities available. Wow. To exhaust all available possibilities. So therefore, it means also to exploit time, to molest it, to take advantage of time that's given to us. Jesus is very concerned. about Now, this is interesting about Jesus. Jesus, he made the most of his time for 30 years. But what's interesting is when his earthly ministry started, where we actually have a picture of how he spent his time, he deeply maximized his time. If you look at Jesus' time... One of the things I like about the book of Mark is it said, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately. Because it points to the fact that, yo, Jesus was maximizing his time. And so if Jesus was able in three years to maximize his time, John says in John chapter 21, this, this is my, I'm still trying to understand whether this is hyperbole or literal or not. It says, if all that Jesus did could be written in books, he said, I declare. Now, he's talking about the three-year period. Some scholars believe possibly post his resurrection, pre his ascension. If all, because it says, and many more signs did he do attempting to convince him that he was the Christ. To convince them, not him, because he already knew, but to convince them that he was the Christ. It says, and, and John said, man, I ain't even got, I mean, I'm at chapter 21 now. You know what I'm saying? He said, if I wrote everything, he said, I declare that the world itself could not contain the amount of, 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 of divine acts that Jesus did. There is no library big enough. The Library of Congress doesn't have the card catalog to hold the works of the Lord Jesus Christ because he made the most 
of time. If Jesus made the most of his time, how about us? That means chilling shouldn't be normal. What you doing? Chilling. What you got going this week? I don't know, man. I mean, hey, you know what I'm saying? I'm thinking about, you thinking about. You don't want to have an orbitless existence. Now, I'm going to talk in a few weeks about how rest is also a stewarding action that helps you to be refueled. Not so, because you, oh, God, help me. Because, see, some of y'all are going to say, oh, sleeping is redemptive. Ha, praise God, I'm going to sleep right now. You know what I'm saying? You <laughs> know what I'm saying? So you're going to be like, dang, thank you for my, we're going to wake up. Thank you for my redemption, God. Thank you for my redemption. <laughs> But it's, I'm going to talk about in a few weeks how Sabbath, how that refuels you for mission. It's a refueling mechanism, a meditative mechanism. And sleeping is not only the only part of Sabbath. We'll talk about that. But we need to make good use of our time. So therefore, what we're going to learn to do during this section, and I can't finish it all today, is we must identify core responsibilities for us. That's unique to you, but that's also unique to Christians. And what you want to do is you want to write that down. Because one book I'm going through right now, it 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 says that most people spend 95% of their time on stuff that they're not going to be held accountable for. They spend 95% of their time that stuff that is not the core that they're responsible for. So therefore, every believer, in order to maximize the time, is not just making a schedule. But it's based on what God holds you responsible for that you put on that schedule and make central. You got that? And so, and so it's very important that we know how to theologically understand it, but also practically walk it out. You can talk all that you want to, but if you don't use your time, even, even hanging with your Christian friends all the time can be a lack of redemptive time. We were getting it in. Yeah, we getting it in. But you're late for work, though. Help me, somebody. I will jump out this window with no parachute. I'm telling you right now. And so, we, but, but, but the Bible says use our time wisely. <laughs> and, and, so, and so we as Christians, that's one of the sectors of our talent that we must make, make time for. So I, I, I wrote down like, I wrote down some of the things for me, that, that, and I, this is so helpful for me. I was just bleeding the whole room. You know, my office was just blood everywhere just because God is just convicting me redemptively about really making the most of my time and not doing what people want me responsible for, but what God wants me responsible for. Somebody ought to hear me. Some of y'all are living based on people's desires for you, but they're not biblical desires for you. They're not, they're not, they're not even supposed to be on the list of things that comes up at the beam of seat, but you put them on your plate because you don't know what you're supposed to be doing at the core. So we talk about this idea of identifying areas. I, I, I'll just name a few of mine. 
that I need at the core. And that when I make a schedule, when I do it, now don't do this and act like you don't live in a world with rules. Like at the core, be on time for work. I mean, tch, I mean, God's just concerned about me being on mission. So if I, yeah, you won't have that job if you're just concerned about that. Amen. So my core, hot pursuit of Jesus and progressive growth in him. He's going to hold me accountable for that. He's going to hold me accountable to that. John chapter 15, the whole chapter. He's going to hold me accountable for that. I think he may hold you accountable for that too. So these are some of my core stuff. But we'll talk next week about practical abilities, material resources, and we'll talk about spiritual stuff that all Christians are responsible for. But then, for, then another one for me is a gospel-centered relationship with my wife. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23 through 33. So I said, I need to have these as things that orbit my life and that's practically scheduled in my schedule, not a fly-by-night thing. Nurturing Nehemiah and Manny through the ministry of the word, interaction with Yvette, and a ministry of presence. That means I need to be home, present. God's going to hold me accountable for how I raised those, those boys. Next, leading Epiphany in a constant journey of being conformed to Christ's image as a healthy missional community of faith. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, 1 Peter 5, 1 through, 11, 1 through 3. So God is going to hold me accountable. Now, 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 let me, let me just say this. Now, some of y'all, as y'all make y'all lists, like Paul says, as you make your list, I mean, James says, you make your list, don't many of y'all desire to be teachers? I, you know why? Because everything that you're responsible for is upgraded in the responsibility that you have for it because you've had more time than the average person to study. And if you know that and don't do it, you'll be held more accountable for it. <laughs> so, so if you want to teach, you may want to wait. Amen. Developing a crop of healthy African-American men who lead with humility. That's one of the things that God has zoomed in on me because of 75% of the men in prison being African-Americans. That, that I can't, I, I would, if I died and there wasn't a crop of African-American leaders, that doesn't mean we just, y'all see we're in the multi-ethnic church, that doesn't mean we just minister to the black people. But there is an epidemic that's happening among African-Americans that should be more than just black people's responsibility, but all Christians' responsibility. And so for me, that, that, that's a big thing. I could, I could go on a couple more of mine. But I want you this week, as you think about your time, I want you to begin thinking about the redemption of time, buying back time. I want you to really pray that God would give you some core layout of, uh, because you can't redeem time unless you know what to do with it. That's very, very important. So I'm praying that right now, there, there are cats that are on these corners, that, that that's been their life for their whole life. But their, their wasting of time is more visually obvious. But sometimes ours is less obvious. Because many of us are busy at things that are not a part of our core. So we want to make sure that we're laying that out. I'm going to talk to you more and more next week about it. I wish I had more time. But I want to shut it down now because I want us to salive this. I want us to really salive this and think about it, 
pray through it, and ask God to give us the grace to not waste any more time, but that we would use time wisely so that we can see, we can see him redeem it, buy it back, and that when you, when, ah, I'm getting before myself, but yeah, we're going to talk about it next week. I'm getting excited about it. Father, us really, I, I believe you want us to really work through this really, really well and slowly as we talk through this parable, Lord. So I want to interpret it at the same time versus just going through it and coming back and looking at everything. I, I really believe that you want us to just walk through this parable, kind of work through the implications of it, Lord God, so that we can walk as practical citizens who understand the scriptures and also understand what we should do with those scriptures. So, God, when it comes to time, help us to live our lives in light of your return. <laughs> help us to live in light of your return. Help us to not act like functional atheists or agnostics or functional deists. Help us, God. Help us to live life in light of your truth. God, we love you. We love you, and God, we thank you that Jesus Christ already used time wisely. So because he used time wisely, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we recognize that reality in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would snatch us out of our comfort zone and help us to get even more focused on our time and, and, and help it to be an enjoyment versus a chore. Help, help our use of time not, not to be just a chore. Oh, I got to do this. I gotta. Help the requirements to be like honey in our mouth. <laughs> and many of us still don't have clarity, God. We don't, we don't have clarity. Will you give clarity? to us when we you said you said no good thing will you withhold from us but good is based on you not us so God break us if you have to to help us to see some things that we would have never seen unless you broke us challenge us purify us with the fire of trials humble us so that we may see I used to help us not to covet anybody else's talents Help us not to, 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 to covet anybody else's abilities. <laughs> but Lord God, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that we would be comfortable with who you made us to be. Because of Jesus, not because we self-absorbed, but because of Jesus. And God, help us encourage one another about our time. God, we love you. And we want to live in light of your return. We don't want any stone in our life to be unturned. So will you shine your glory on every unturned rock in our life? And I know that brings uncomfort, discomfort. But the beauty, Lord, we just say around here, we say that based on Romans chapter 8, verse 29, you, you, you predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And you will make us look like him no matter what. And so, God, as it relates to time, help in the area of time that you will help us to look like Jesus. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray and we honor you. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior.